Hello, my name is Larry Kessler. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine located in Philadelphia. Welcome to our podcast series. In this series, scholars discuss their books with readers from a variety of professions and backgrounds. Today, we're discussing urban environments, air quality, health, and reconstructing the sense of smell in the past with Melanie Keechel. Melanie is Assistant Professor of History at Virginia Tech and author of the book Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Smell Detectives follows the 19th century Americans who used their noses to make sense of the sanitary challenges caused by rapid urban and industrial growth. Believing that foul odors caused illness, medical experts and ordinary people alike equated the new and stronger stenches of overcrowded cities with disease and danger. And so they attempted to make cities healthier by detecting and then mitigating the most menacing odors. Joining Melanie to discuss her book are Gary Burlingham, director of the Bureau of Laboratory Services at the Philadelphia Water Department, Robert DeSalle, curator of the exhibit Our Senses, an Immersive Experience at the American Museum of Natural History, Allison Goldberg, a pathologist at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and Richard Taylor, associate professor of HVAC technology, heating and design at Penn College in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I'm an assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech and the author of Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. I want to thank everyone who took the time to read Smell Detectives and record your fascinating questions. They were really great for me to think about, and I'm excited to respond to them now. I'm also really thankful to the Center for Histories of Science, Technology, and Medicine for putting this podcast together. I think it's a great way to connect authors with readers, um, and I hope that you'll enjoy listening. Our first set of questions comes from Gary Burlingame of the Philadelphia Water Department. People's lives in general were more odorous back in the 19th century as compared to today. Today, we deodorize our bodies and homes and then re-add scents back to them. We even expect our bathrooms to be without any hint of smell. If we were to go back in time to the mid-1800s, how appalled would we be at the everyday smell of life, even without the addition of all the industrial stenches? Gary, thank you so much for this great question about time travel. I um, like watching Timeless on TV, and I'm always surprised that the actors aren't bothered by the smells of the places that they go in the past. I think in order to think about this, how we would react to the stenches, say, in New York in the 1870s, we have to really think about two different things. One is what New York smelled like then, and the second thing is, are we familiar with those smells in our lives today? Uh, The second thing is really important because a lot of how we react to odors is determined by what odors we're familiar with. Therefore, we can identify them. We tend to not be so worried by them. And odors that are unusual to us. Often unusual odors, meaning odors we don't um, encounter often in our daily lives, 
raise alarm bells and raise questions. So in thinking about um, New York in the 19th century, but we could also think about Philadelphia in the 19th century, um, there's a lot that's pretty different from what those cities are like today. The first thing that we have to keep in mind is that most transportation is powered by horses. So that means not only are there horses everywhere in the city, but there is also a lot of horse manure everywhere in the city. And that, of course, smells. I grew up on a farm, so the smell of manure doesn't bother me. I'm really familiar with it. Uh, but for most city dwellers, that's not a normal smell. So if we were to go back in time, we would be able to identify the smell probably. Most people know what manure smells like, um, but we'd be astounded <laughs> by the fact that you can't get away from the smell and that it's everywhere. It was a really strong smell in 19th century cities. On the other hand, I think we wouldn't be surprised um, when we went into people's homes by the smells that we encountered. There'd be smells that are different from the smells that we have today, but as you mentioned, we spend a lot of time today in our homes with trying to deodorize spaces. Uh, now we have Febreze, but in the 19th century, people were also working really hard to control the smells of the spaces in their homes. They didn't have Febreze, but they did have a number of different things, the first of which are fragrant plants. And so if we went back um, into 19th century homes, I think that we would encounter far more fragrant plants than we do in your average home today. Uh, I'm sitting in my home right now and there is not a plant in sight unless you go outside. The other thing that we would find is that Americans in their homes were working really hard to control odors by taking trash outside immediately and also by using disinfectants. Uh, the primary one is something we don't use that often anymore, but it's whitewash. And whitewash, I've often thought of it as a paint um, because it was, people would paint it on their walls, but the ingredient in whitewash that gave it that white color was lime. And lime is, um, we know, something that arrests decomposition. And so using whitewash liberally in the home was something that people did not only so things would look good, but also in an effort to control odors. So those are just two things to get you started, but I'm sure you can imagine many more smells in 19th century cities and how similar they are to what we smell today and how appalled or familiar you would be with those smells going back in time. Throughout history, our attitudes about the human sense of smell have changed. Some have thought it was a sin to focus on our sense of smell, or that the human sense of smell was simply left over from evolution, such that we should no longer be relying on it, since we now walk upright rather than with our noses to the ground. And then others romanticized it because of its ability to recall powerful memories. In the 19th century, as this common sense became valuable in improving the healthful environments of our cities, what were the medical and psychology communities teaching about the human sense of smell? What were poets writing about it? Did this help or have negative impacts on the use of this valuable common sense to bring about good changes in our cities? Thanks, Gary, for another really great question here. I think this is an important one to think about. You know, how did the medical community, the psychology community, the literary community think about smell in the 19th century? How is it different from what was going on before and from what is going on today? Certainly the 19th century is not the first person that everyone noticed their sense of smell. Um, 
you're right to think that scientists were really curious about this, especially as they made advances in understanding the respiratory system, understanding our biology. There were lots of questions that people had about how, in fact, odors are generated, um, what are odors themselves, and also how do we sense smells um, using our noses. Uh, everyone knew that you used your nose, but beyond that, there wasn't really a clear understanding of how the sense of smell operates within the human body. And there were lots of different theories that people came up with. There wasn't any conclusive idea in the 19th century so I can't point you to one or another. In the early 20th century, that research really gets off the ground. I will point, however, to a few different approaches that came out um, as people were playing around with their senses, particularly the sense of smell in the 19th century. One idea that was created, particularly later in the 19th century, as people were working hard to banish smells from American cities and cities elsewhere, was that the sense of smell can be a source of pain, but it's also a source of great pleasure. Fragrant flowers are wonderful. I will admit that I am a big fan of lilacs. Every spring, I will stop to smell a lilac in bloom uh, whenever I pass it. And as odors are being banished from the cities, people began to worry that this movement was going to go too far. And in fact, it would remove all odors from American cities. One of the responses that people came up with was the idea that we should be able to go to smell concerts in the same way that we can go to music concerts, that we could really indulge our senses, indulge the sense of smell in, at a smell concert. This was the idea in the same way that we indulge our sense of hearing when we go to a, a musical concert. I don't know that any smell concerts were ever put into place. I just read ideas about this, not uh, accounts of anyone who attended one. But I think that was a really interesting idea, the way in which people were thinking not only about the sense of smell, but also importantly, how can we embrace, how can we enjoy our sense of smell? And to think about poets, there's quite a bit of poetry. It was one of my favorite uh, research finds that I like to share in the book about smells. One of the things that I was really astonished to find were a lot of poems about plumbing, <laughs> um, which often commented on smells that would come from plumbing. Another thing that I was really intrigued by, and I think this is probably the most important poetic contribution to smell, um, at least that I can think of for 19th century cities, is Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Cologne. It's a short poem. It's 12 or 16 lines in total. But what it's about is an industrial city, Cologne, and how much that industrial city stinks. I would use this poem now as an environmental historian to talk about how people are grappling with pollution. One of the things that Coleridge writes in that poem is that Cologne is a city of two and 70 stenches. That's what he says he could count in the city. And he also talks about how lots of things are being dumped into the Rhine River, which runs through the city of Cologne. The poem ends by asking, who's going to clean the River Rhine? And that was a really powerful question. 
The reason I think this poem is so important is that it was widely known in the 19th century and it became shorthand for a smelly city. Um, and so people writing about cities, writing about city smells, were talking about whether their city was better or worse than Cologne. Uh, and most of the references I found are people who are using Coleridge's poem to say two and 70. <laughs> That's very few compared to the number of smells that we have here. So I think these different ideas, these explorations of the sense of smell, which were happening within the scientific community, within the literary community, and those two communities are not walled off from one another. There's a lot of overlap in the 19th century. Those explorations were really important to people who were thinking about um, smells, who were trying to make a change, make differences. Some of the poetry, like the poetry about plumbing, actually helped to promote this new technology and, and encourage people to incorporate it into their homes. But I don't think that we can say overall that this exploration helped or hurt um, how people use their sense of smell. It's really a reflection, I would say, of how people were thinking about smell, thinking with smell, and using it in their lives. But thanks. It's a great question. Next, we have questions from Robert DeSalle of the American Museum of Natural History. Animals smell things differently than we do because they have different odorant receptors. The number of receptors can also vary so that some species have double, even triple the number of receptors that humans have. Have you given any thought to how, say, a dog might have reacted to 19th century cities compared to our ancestral wolf stock, or even to a dog in the city of New York, say? Rob, thank you so much for asking me about how animals <laughs> navigated these cities. Because you're right, when cities were really smelly, it's not just humans who would have noticed that. Certainly the dogs uh, in 19th century cities were um, smelling quite a bit. So were the pigs that were roaming streets uh, looking for something to eat. Uh, these were natural scavengers in the way that pigs were used in the city. Um, a lot of the people who owned pigs, who were the poorer folks, um, would defend the pigs' right to the city, arguing that they actually cleaned the city up because they ate a lot of the waste um, when no one else took care of it. But if we're going to think about how um, animals were reacting to 19th century cities, I think we need to consider not just pigs and hogs, as well as dogs. Early in the 19th century, as Catherine McNoor has explained in Taming Manhattan, um, both of those animals fell into pet categories, and that's something that changes as the city government tries to take a closer rein on Manhattan's environment. But we also have to think about animals that certainly have been in American cities for a really long time. They're still there today, but we often um, don't like to think about and we hope not to encounter. So I want to recommend another book um, that will help you think about rats and how rats uh, navigate cities. So I would direct you to a wonderful book called Pests in the City. It was written by Dawn Day Beeler, and she does this fabulous job of getting us, you know, inside a fly's eye, um, as well as thinking about how bed bugs and cockroaches and rats navigate urban environments. What makes these environments good 
um, in the perception of animals that we consider pests, and also how they move through those environments. Smell is really important, not just for pigs in locating food, but also for rats in locating food. And so when we think about why people were so concerned with controlling odors in their home in the 19th century, as well as today, we have to consider what those odors would attract. And Dawn Bueller's book is definitely the place to get some insights into that, even though she starts not in the 19th century cities that I'm working in, but a bit later uh, towards the end of the 19th century. So there's a little bit of overlap, uh, but she can definitely give you that sense of how animals have smelled and navigated our cities, as well as the other senses that these pests have used um, to really make cities their homes as well as ours. Thanks again for that great question. New York City today is a very smelly place, especially in the dog days of summer. What about the city of the future? What might it smell like? Usually my line is that I'm a historian, so I don't do any forecasting. I like to stick closely to the past. Um, but one thing I can say for sure is that how cities smell, whether in the past or in the future, is dependent on what humans and what others are doing in those cities. A lot of the transformations in the smells of our cities now to the smells of uh, 19th century cities have to do with um, actions and processes we've allowed in our cities, as well as things that we've eliminated from the urban environment. So for instance, um, in the 19th century, people were driving um, livestock as well as horses through city streets. Today, that's not common in American cities, but we've replaced a lot of that with cars. And so we have a new smell and a different smell, which is um, exhaust coming from all of those vehicles. Now the city of the future, perhaps in the future, will switch over entirely to electronic vehicles and we won't have the exhaust issue, um, but maybe we're gonna go in a different direction. Whichever one of those things we do, and it could be that we, for some reason decide to bring horses back into our cities, that's going to affect in large ways what our cities smell like. The other thing that I think is important to think about, and, and you point to it, is you know how cities are really smelly in the dog days of summer when it's hot because the sun and heat do make decomposition go faster, things smell stronger. Um, so one thing I think we really have to grapple with if we want to extrapolate into the future and think about what the future uh, cities might smell like in the future is how climate change is going to affect the ambient temperature and the average temperature of our cities in the future. If New York City heats up um, and has many more dog days of summer, you know, defined by the current standard, if those days are more frequent, those really hot days, then it may be that New York City will be a lot smellier. Not that there's like a net increase in smells, but that there are many more days when the city's stenches are released fully. Of course, um, we can do other things in our environment. And another thing that we could do is um, reverse some of the um, early 20th century's attempts to move all plants out of cities. And if we bring fragrant plants back in um, and plant them everywhere, uh, which is an ambitious idea, uh, but since we're imagining the future, we can imagine anything. So say we bring lots of fragrant plants back into the city, that can make the city smell a lot better potentially than it does now. Um, 
in the heat of summer, those fragrant oils would also be released um, in much stronger concentrations. Um, and maybe that could counteract. Uh, one thing that we have to keep in mind with our cities is that they're smelly places, but there are lots of smells, both good and bad. And so in thinking about what we want our cities to smell like, what we hope the cities of the future will smell like, we have to think about what we can do to contribute to those odors. It's a really great question and fun to think about. Our next reader is Allison Goldberg, a pathologist from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I found the concept of smell as it relates to power a fascinating component of smell detectives. The idea that everyone can smell means that the ability to complain about foul smells is fully egalitarian. I wonder, however, how that egalitarianism conflicts with the advanced knowledge necessary for understanding the causes and consequences of smells. Does that take away from the egalitarian nature of smell? Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for reading Smell Detectives. It's definitely a different way of tracking diseases to their causes than you do today as a pathologist. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in how medical history reads to today's medical practitioners. I really like this question about the idea that everyone could smell. And so the sense of smell um, was somehow egalitarian in the 19th century. However, I just want to caution us from going too far towards that egalitarian vision um, where everyone could smell bad things and therefore everyone had some control because what happened in 19th century cities is people would smell things and then they would write complaints often to the city government. But 19th century cities like our cities today, certain members of the population were listened to far more readily by the city government than others. And so what we can look at and think about in how people all had the sense of smell, where it's not egalitarian, is how all people were able to access the government and create change around the odors that bothered them. So to think about that the egalitarian nature or not of smell, one thing that has changed since the 19th century is that we now know, you certainly know, odors don't cause disease. That's really different from how 19th century Americans understood miasma, um, foul airs that they believed did cause disease when they breathed them in. Since we know now that odors don't cause disease, odor complaints just aren't a big deal, certainly not the kind of big deal they were in the 19th century, and they're rarely taken seriously today. In some places where we have odorous industries, industries that um, use a lot of chemicals, smell complaints will be taken more seriously, not because there's a fear that they cause disease, but because there's an understanding that those odors are related to chemical releases and chemical pollutants. There's also a movement, um, and I think this might get back towards the egalitarian idea that you were pointing out. There's a movement that started now, uh, it's ongoing among citizen scientists and lay observers who are concerned about air pollution to keep odor logs. And what they do is something that is really recognizable to me from reading about smells in the 19th century. In odor logs, um, people will record date, time, wind, um, and temperature, and of course, what smells they find in the air. 
And they do this, um, keep odor logs, in order to identify a pattern and a problem, particularly when the local government or the local industry isn't listening to their concerns. So I've, um, I've heard about odor logs currently being kept in New Orleans, also in Pittsburgh and in San Francisco. There are apps where people can uh, record what they're smelling, rate the odor um, that they're smelling, um, and all of that information is going in. It's being used by departments um, who work on the environment as well as departments that work on health within those cities' governments. And also in Houston, there's a growing movement to keep odor logs as a way of tracking what's in the atmosphere. It's not a measurement of what's in the atmosphere strictly, but those odor logs can be correlated with measurements that scientists um, and meteorologists are taking. The idea that a lot of these different groups, many of them citizens, have in, in keeping odor logs and in regularizing this practice is that they much like the smell detectors from the 19th century, can leverage their own bodies um, and their own experiences of the urban environment in order to make the urban environment better for everyone. And so, yeah, there, there's still an egalitarian uh, bit to the fact that we all have noses and we all have a sense of smell. Smell Detectives talks of the frustrations both scientists and laypeople faced in improving their environments. How do you think their struggles could inform today's efforts towards cleaner air and water? Oh, this is a great question, Allison. Um, as a historian, it really speaks to me. How can we learn from the past? So, yeah, I do think there's a lot that we can learn from what was going on in the 19th century and how both scientists and lay people were struggling to improve their environment. One thing that strikes me as being particularly important is that the moments when I found smell detectives, that includes both officials, health officials, scientists, as well as lay citizens who are concerned about a smell, um, when they were most effective in getting change is when both officials and scientists, as well as lay citizens, were working together and collaborating, right, bringing their different types of knowledge together. So I want to refer back to the odor logs I just mentioned, because this is something where I think people are not doing the exact same thing that was going on in the 19th century, but they do have a similar idea, right? And they can create collaboration around that. If when lay citizens are keeping odor logs, there are also scientists who are working with them, right, who don't dismiss what lay citizens are doing, just say, oh, that smells, but actually correlate or corroborate those odor logs with their chemical analyses of air quality. There are opportunities for people to come together, right, for us um, to mobilize both scientific knowledge and lay knowledge at the same time in order to work on having um, cleaner air in particular when we think about odors, but also cleaner water, right? If you keep a taste log um, about how your water tastes, what your water looks like, and scientists are also measuring the water quality, you can put those two together and use both sets of information as data. I think that's one of the things that's really important. And that's one of the things I hope um, practitioners of science today could get from reading about the struggles of smell detectives in the past. Thanks so much. Finally, 
We have questions from Richard Taylor from Penn College. How does the evolution of ventilation standards crafted by the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers correlate to the developmental work of the smell detectors? Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for reading. I got really interested in the history of ventilation, um, as you might have guessed, while I was writing Smell Detectives, because smell is absolutely connected to the air. And a lot of the people who were concerned about odors in their homes were also concerned about how to have fresh air and if they had enough fresh air in their homes. This is something that really picked up at the start of the 19th century as um, scientists figured out how respiration worked um, much better than they had understood it before. So the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers is after comes into existence after the end of my story, um, but the ventilation standards that they pass, um, you know, are picking up on ventilation standards that had been put into practice, but weren't exactly standardized across the 19th century. And I do think that there's a there's a close connection with the work of the smell detectives there. So early in the 19th century, as that knowledge of respiration gets better, people were doing a lot of calculating, mostly scientists um, were doing this calculating to figure out how much air a body needed and how much air a body corrupted. So the idea there was that when you breathe in, your body takes in the oxygen, and when you exhale, your body releases carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, a lot of physicians and scientists felt, was dangerous to human bodies. So the concern was that if you were in an airtight space, more that carbon dioxide that you exhaled was going to build up and eventually you'd be breathing in poison. They called it vitiated air and they um, also thought they could smell that air, that it had a fusty smell that was identifiable. So if you went to a bedroom that had been shut up all night, that's the stale air smell that you would smell in the morning. So these physicians, as they're doing all these calculations, start making the first calculations about how much space, how much air space needs to be in a room in which people live um, and how much space you need as the number of people in that room multiplies. Then, of course, they begin thinking about ventilation, how to move air in and out of the room in the most effective ways. And so they start creating um, guidelines early in the 19th century that get written into a lot of architecture manuals as well into a lot of domestic advice. But I'm not sure that uh, most Americans were following that advice or even were able to measure the airspace um, that they had and the spaces available to them. This is especially true when we think about um, crowded tenements within any of our cities um, where lots of people were cramped into very small spaces and ventilation was a concern that doctors had. It was also a concern that many of the residents had, but they didn't have control over the ventilation. And so to deal with that, the government got involved um, with creating tenement acts in New York City, um, which tried to make ventilation better within those crowded spaces. Um, but I'm not sure it addressed the root cause, which is that there were too many people within that space. 
So, so that's my answer for you. Obviously, um, as a lot of these techniques became better and as air conditioning came in um, at the end of the very end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, discussions about air and ventilation standards changed um, so that now when people talk about fresh air, particularly um, people in your line of work, what you're talking about is how much air moves through a space within a particular amount of time. When did the changes from open fireplace heating to metal stove box heating to central steam heating and multifamily buildings in New York City occur? And how did that affect ventilation strategies? This is another really great question. So technologies within the home, of course, impact more than just the technology itself and changes in heating technology did make a lot of difference to the air that people breathed. I can't give exact dates for when technologies transferred from open fireplaces to stove box heating to central steam heating. Often, not because there aren't specific dates when new, new inventions were introduced, but because implementation of those new technologies often took a long time. I can say, however, that when we look at particularly domestic advice, like the works of Catherine Esther Beecher, we see her reacting to those new technologies and giving women um, as housekeepers new guidelines of what they should do, of how they can make sure that they have fresh air in their home. So open fireplaces um, were natural ventilators, particularly um, early in the 19th century when houses were not airtight, very different from our construction methods today. Open fireplaces weren't great for heating homes um, because they you know, be warm right next to a fireplace. But what they do is they create a draft. They draw in lots of oxygen. So they draw in air, um, you know, through those rickety walls around the windows and around the doors through every airspace that they could and then push air up and out through chimneys. Benjamin Franklin realized that early on. He devised the Franklin stove. Lots of other inventors were also working really hard um, to develop alternative um, heating technologies. But when they came up with these new stoves that would consume less firewood, certainly, and use different sources of energy, coal is one, people reacted to them in interesting ways. So with the introduction of iron um, stoves, like a, like a wood stove, some people didn't like how they smelled. They preferred the smell of the open fireplace to the smell of that heated iron. And they talked about that as being a bad change. They also um, talked about, and Andrew Jackson Downing uh, is someone who railed against these new stoves for this, that the fact that rooms would be too warm, overheated, in fact, compared to when you had all those drafts that the fireplace was creating. And so with every technology that came about um, to change heating, within the domestic guides, the works that are being written by women for other women about how to care for the home, there'd be new strategies for ventilation. So one of the things that Catherine Beecher recommends um, if people are adopting new heating technologies into their home, she updates her recommendations. It 
it's really helpful. Um, in the 1850s and the 1860s, she ta starts talking about how you should arrange your rooms and also leaving doors open between rooms as well as opening some windows, depending, um, in order to ensure a flow of air throughout the home. Um, and that's one of the ways to make sure things would stay ventilated. And yeah, I, that's a um, little bit that I can tell you to help. I am still hoping that someone's going to write a really thorough and detailed history of ventilation because it's a topic that I found fascinating and I think um, it would be good for us to think about and think more about. Thanks again for your questions and for reading Smell Detectives. I really appreciate it. And if anyone else has questions of smell detectives, I encourage you to get in touch. It's been a pleasure to answer these questions and I'd love to hear from you if you've read smell detectives and you have questions of your own for thinking about smells and how you can find smells in history. Thanks, bye. This podcast has been a production of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. If you enjoyed this discussion of Smell Detectives and want to hear future episodes, please subscribe to the series using your preferred podcast platform. For more information on the Consortium, please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at chstmorg, or visit chstm.org. My name is Larry Kessler. Thanks for listening.